Thank you so much for watching the Katie Helper Show and this great interview that I did with Richard Wolf. Great because of Richard Wolf, not because of me. Um, you're definitely going to want to become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show because there you will be able to access an extended interview that I did with Richard where he talks about the French elections, what the media refuses to tell you about European politics. He talks about his personal life as well as in his childhood, growing up the way he did, being raised by his parents. He talks about his mother, her experience of the war, his father, his experience of the war what it's like to be taught different languages, German, French, how important that is. He talks about Marxism, talks about how his parents shaped his political outlook. So again, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And if you don't already, make sure you subscribe to this channel, youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also like this stream, share the stream. And you can once again become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Each week we give you exclusive content. You have 45 minutes more of Richard Wolf for this week. And you can also become YouTube members of the Katie Helper Show. And when you do that, you get badges and cool exclusive emojis. Thanks again so much. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Shifting gears, but it's also a continuation in some ways, because I feel like this moment that we're in is very reminiscent of, for some reason, I keep thinking of World War One. It is, very much. I agree with you. Here I'll put on my hat as an economist, as an yeah. economic historian. World War One was a clash of a rising versus a declining empire. The declining empire, Britain. It had been the ruling empire of the world. For over a century, basically from the Napoleonic Wars, where Napoleon was defeated by the British, they then took over, and for the rest of the 19th and into the early part of the 20th, the British Empire was the empire of the world. Nobody came close. After all, the United States begins as a colony, a small, minor colony within that empire. Okay, then, as often happens to empires, and we should keep this in mind, different parts of it have enough and break away, often violently, the way we did. We had two wars, the Independence War in 1776, and then what people forget, the War of 1812, which was the effort of the British to re-establish the empire they had lost in this part of the world. Anyway, so they... They hoped they would rule forever, which seems to be a congenital problem of empires. They imagine it'll go forever. The Greeks did, the Romans did, and so on. And the British did too. But the challengers, the people who want to have the, the power and the wealth and all that goes with empire, are always there. And by the end of the 19th century, there were two major and two minor challengers. The major challenges were the United States and Germany. 
The secondary, not major, but problematic, were the Russians and the Japanese. So World War I destroys basically three out of the four contestants. It destroys uh, Germany, it destroys Russia, and it destroys Britain. I mean, they're gone. They've, you know, I'll give you an example. Before World War I, Britain was the world's great creditor. At the end of World War I, Britain, France were all debtors. We were the, the United States because we didn't have to have the war fought on our territory. We emerged as the power. We were left standing in a way. Our economy could take off, and it did, to replace them. World War II was the defeat of the Germans who tried again to undo World War I with Hitler and the Japanese who allied with Hitler for the same purpose. They went and they lost, they were defeated. Uh, but they were defeated by the United States, which then was in the position of again the only one left standing, with the exception of Pearl Harbor. There was no World War II on America's soil. We lost fewer soldiers. We had no destruction at all. In fact, the war put people back to work after the Great Depression had, had thrown people out. So starting in 1945, and basically, I'm going to exaggerate a bit, but not much until now, the United States became the global empire. The dollar became the world's currency, the way the British pound had been under the British empire, etc., etc. Now we come to the present. What the present is, is the Americans are discovering, like every empire before, that eventually the challengers are going to figure out what your weak points are, what your strong point, what they have to do to replace you, just like the United States found out what it had to do to break from the British Empire, to compete with the British Empire, to outdo the British Empire, all of which they did. And now, you know, it's happening again. And just like every other country, look, there are many people in Britain who still don't understand that their empire is over, that they have become what they once were, a wet, cold little island off the mainland of Europe. I mean, it's very painful. I understand it. It's a lot of fun going up the hill, but it's no good coming down. We are now in that position. That's why Americans feel as bad as they do. And I can tell you who's coming up. It's the People's Republic of China. Everybody who isn't really crazy knows it and sees it. And I, by the way, I don't just mean lefties. I talk to a lot of people on Wall Street. You know, my years at Harvard and Yale, I have my personal friends that are politically away on the other side. We all understand what's going on. We may not say it publicly. We may be upset by it. But, I mean, we're not babies. We see, you know. Uh, and one of the things that the Chinese have done is made an alliance with Russia. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Russia is not the problem for the United States economically. It never was. Now, let me give you an example, which your audience needs to know. In economics, we measure the importance or the size of an economy by a number, the GDP, the gross domestic product. It's literally a rough measure of the goods and services produced in a year by your economy. So it gives you a, an index, 
It's not very accurate, but a rough idea. Uh, the, the GDP of the United States right now is about $21 trillion. The GDP of Russia right now is $1.5 trillion. So let's be real clear. In an economic war between the United States and Russia, you have about the same kind of David and Goliath difference that you have between the Russian army and the Ukrainian army. In other words, yeah, these are not battles of equals, but it's not just on the Russia versus Ukraine inequality, it's the United States. The People's Republic of China's GDP right now is about 14 trillion. So it's halfway, more than halfway, two thirds of the way to the United States, which is why it is the colossus that is the challenger now. And their alliance with Russia is a very logical way for them to try to position what? The rise of their empire and the decline of ours. Americans somewhere know it. They know that the United States lost the war in Vietnam, lost the war in Afghanistan, and basically lost the war in Iraq as well. Those are signs. The fact that China has developed technologically as advanced mechanisms of telecommunications and, and all of that, uh, as we have, is a sign. The fact that in the United States, COVID is about to go across 1 million dead Americans, and the Chinese death count is 10,000. Uh, what? I mean, one society is performing and another one isn't on a scale that you would have to be self-deluded in the extreme not to understand. And, and yet, again, American media are doing a disservice by keeping their own populations unaware, whether it's the, the government of Portugal, as I gave you before, or these realities, and I'm just scratching the surface here. Uh, and if you talk to the smart people on Wall Street, they know all of this. You know, if you get Nouriel Rubini at the Stern School of Business at NYU, who's very, very smart, he knows all of this. He works this in. Uh, Stephen Roach, who used to be the, the Morgan Stanley economist. And so they all understand what I'm talking about. And they say it all publicly, but the, the mass media has a kind of relationship to the population of a censor. They're not supposed to do that. I'm not even clear why they're doing it. I don't think it's all that good for the, even for the reproduction of capitalist America to keep your people in this level of ignorance and lack of understanding. Of course, people can't make sense of what's happening. You've deprived them of the tools with which to do that. You complain that they don't care about politics, but you haven't given them the wherewithal. And I'm exempting folks like you who are the exceptional journalists and podcasters. And no, no, you, you perform an invaluable, you know, I take my hat off to every one of these uh, services like yours because you, you are doing the education that the rest of the system is failing to do. And what are your thoughts on the war in Ukraine? I mean, one of the things that reminds me of World War I is, 
it seems like much like the left was unable to stop World War I and people really supporting their own nation state. We see that today, even among people who I would think are kind of above that. But we see a kind of uh, weirdly nationalistic analysis where it's all about the U.S. is doing the right thing. We care about Ukrainians. Putin is Hitlerian. I mean, I've never seen this. Not only is he being compared to Hitler, but in some cases he's being made out to be worse than Hitler. I mean, Lloyd Blankfein tweeted this out saying at least Hitler didn't use chemical weapons, which is news to me. Uh, But uh, it's a it's a scary moment. I feel like the left has is very has been very seduced by a lot of propaganda. Again, even people who I would have thought would have been beyond that. Any advice that you have for how the left can navigate this moment? Yeah, I think they ought to be very, very careful. This war, like money, you know, I, I don't know who the journalist was, but there was a very smart journalist who said the following thing years ago, that the first casualty in every war is the truth. That's the first thing. And people have to understand there is a blizzard of propaganda going on, as there was before in the early days of World War One. You demonize the other side. You are all either a great victor or a terrible victim, and the other side is either a big loser or a terrible victim. I I mean, it's childish. You don't have to be duped by this. You can know from historical parallel that it's going to take some time before we can figure out who is who. Saddam Hussein was, by the way, compared to Hitler, too. His army was talked about as if it were something other than the trivial force that it actually was. I don't want to bore people by reminding us that we had Colin Powell talking about the weapons of mass destruction that we were going there to get rid of, which weren't there and had never been there. It was all made up. Uh, People have to remember all of that. I I don't think we're worse at it than the other. I don't know what, what the Russians are telling their people, but I... I hope I'm not being unfair, but my suspicion is they're doing on their side, more or less, what what is being done here. But we don't have to be uh, the dupes of it. And let me talk to you about the danger of it, right? In in going into World War I, the German Kaiser, because they had a Kaiser in those days, you know, a feudal czar. Kaiser is the German word that equivalent to the Russian czar um, or king or whatever you want, emperor. Uh, the German Kaiser got on the, the radio then and said, I don't recognize socialists, and then I recognize only Germans. Okay, That's the appeal to the nationalism. Well, the Socialist Party, which was at that time in Germany the number two political party at the time of World War I, 1914, the German Socialist Party was then called upon, because it had so many seats in, the, in their parliament, You couldn't fight the war unless a majority in the parliament voted for the money to pay for the war. And they didn't like the Kaiser. So the Kaiser then appealed to them. And the German Socialist Party split, split right down the middle. Half of them became loyal Germans, voted, and World War I was plunged into, which the Germans then lost. Okay. What happened to the others? the ones who refused, they stood up and said, we are not going to fight and we're not going to urge working men and women in Germany to fight a war between one group of capitalists and another. 
It's their war. We don't do it. Now, let me remind you, there are two major politicians in the world who sided with those German socialists who said no. One was a Russian Marxist named Vladimir Lenin, and who had to leave Russia because he became wanted by the police for urging Russians not to fight. The other one was a man named Eugene Victor Debs. He was the head of the Socialist Party here in the United States, who said the same thing. No American should be dying in a war among capitalists. And he was arrested and put in jail here in the United States. He ran for president of the United States from jail and got over a million votes. I mean, amazing. But we had plenty of precedent for leaders of all kinds to say, this is not a war that we wanted, that we will bet. We're going to pay the price in taxes, in injury, in death, uh, in trauma. This is not... This is not something we ought to be called upon to do. We refuse to do it. Um, I'm not arguing what we're not in a comparable situation right now. And here's the danger. The socialists, when they split, when the war was over, everybody in Germany understood who was right and who was wrong. Right. The people who refused to fight included two famous names. One, Rosa Luxemburg, a very important leader of of German Marxism, and Karl Liechtenstein, another important leader. They were murdered in 1919 because they stood up and said, let's change a system that just did this to us in this horrible lost world war. And while they were killed, out of it came the split in German socialism between the socialists and the communists. And because they couldn't get together, Hitler, a minority political leader, was able to get into office. He could never have done it if the socialists and the communists had stayed together as they had been before World War I. There was no communist party in Germany before World War I. So Germany and the whole world paid a very, very heavy price for that splitting. And we should be very wary in this country, lest the left, at a time when it has a real chance to grow, that's what the Amazon uh, unionization vote shows us. That's what the strikes across the country show us. Here's a moment for social movements like Black Lives Matter and a labor movement that's reawakened could get to, we don't want now to have this fight between a rising Russo-Chinese emperor empire and a declining American empire fight it out to the last poor Ukrainian, we're going to be drawn in to destroy our political objectives and our movement here. That would be self-defeating in an awful way. Right. So we obviously don't have the boots on the ground. This is a war that is a proxy war that we're fighting. I mean, that's how many people see it, including myself. Um, Adam Schiff said, we're fighting Russia over there, so we don't have to fight them over here. He actually right. said that out loud. We've been arming Ukraine in this like, uh, you know, protracted war that they're obviously not going to be able to to win, just militarily speaking. And right. then, of course, we have the economic warfare in the form of sanctions, which is something you've spoken a lot about. And I actually was this is fascinating. I'm going to have to uh, read this book that you recommended on your show about sanctions 
where the author, I believe his name is Mulder, talks about how sanctions is worse in some ways than war. You quoted right. him anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. That, and, and he people, was quoting Woodrow Wilson, I believe. Yeah, it, it, believe me, there's a big mistake going on. Just, again, it's the media, it's a problem. The war is not what is affecting most of the world. The war is localized. I mean, it's horrible for the people in the, you know, I, I've lost much of my family in war. I, my grandmother used to describe to me in great detail what it's like to be bombed. I mean, I have a very visceral sense ever since my childhood. I know that those people are going through unspeakable pain and difficulty and loss and hurt. And, and my heart goes out to them as it does to, to anybody caught up in a war. But if ever there was an example of being a pawn in yeah. someone else's game, this Ukraine is irrelevant. What's important here for the rest of the world is the economic warfare, the sanctioned program that the, that the United States and Western Europe have decided to impose on Russia. That's what's really shaking the world economy, not the war. It, I mean, it's not the Ukrainians that are doing this, and it's not the Russians either. It is the sanction program. Whether you like it or not, you have to see the logic of what it's doing. Russia is a major producer of oil, of gas, of grain, of fertilizer, of a whole lot of important products that are part of an integrated world economy, more integrated than it ever has been before. And so if you really disturb one area of it, it ramifies everywhere. We were already having an inflation in this country before Russia entered Ukraine. But this, this sanction war is making this inflation worse. Look at the headlines today. Eight and a half percent, I believe, is the latest number, is the rate of inflation. The Federal Reserve doesn't know what to do. What it's done already hasn't helped much. Uh, it looks like the inflation will be worse and last longer than it would have, not in the absence of the war, but in the absence of the sanction program. China and Russia were already setting up an alternative global currency. It'll be the yuan, the Chinese currency, which is already being held as a reserve next to the dollar in many central banks. That's going to happen. It's been happening, but it's going to be accelerated now because by saying we won't accept you know, anything from the ruble, okay, you just force Russia and China to speed up what they were already doing. You have to face all of that. Otherwise, again, you're lost in your own rhetoric and you're not understanding what the consequences are. If you don't let the farmers in Ukraine put the seeds in the ground, and that has to be done now, in the next few weeks, you miss, they will not produce grain. That grain will therefore not be in the market. It will mean higher prices for food, which is already happening. That is going to hurt who? The poorest people on the planet, just like the inflation in this country. Who does it hurt the most? The people with middle and low incomes, because they're the ones who can't afford the higher price. Rich people pay more because they have it. If you ever wanted an unjust way of fighting a war, hitting the sanction, look, every capitalist country is organized so that the rich and the powerful are able to offload the costs of the system onto those below them. So if you hit Russia or any other country with these terrible economic warfare, 
the rich people there will offload the costs and the burden onto those at the bottom. Not only will they do it, but they'll explain to the people below them that are hurting, it's the Americans that are doing it to you. Mr. Putin's popularity, according to the Western press, is higher than it's ever been. And I'm not surprised. If we were on the receiving end of such treatment, we'd all be rallying behind whoever our president was. Uh, so the, the mistakes that are being made, the dangerous directions, it frightens me, frankly. And I think your, your notion that it's like World War I, absolutely. Only now the weapons are even more uh, unspeakable. And when Americans understand what the Chinese economy has done, accomplished, and the fact that there's four Chinese for every one of us, that Russia is the largest country by geography in this world, that China is the largest country by population, and that they're now cementing their alliance with India, the number two Whoa, somebody ought to be able to say, wait, 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 stop. stop. This, is, this train is spinning out of control. And, and now you have to the American working class, you've hit them with COVID, with the country failed to deal with it. You hit them with the second worst depression since the Great Depression at the same time. Then when they thought they were in the clear, you whack them in the face with an inflation. And now the Federal Reserve says it's going to raise interest rates and we're going to have a recession by the end of the year. I mean, you cannot do that to a working class and then be surprised that people are angry, bitter, looking for scapegoats, being willing to blame immigrants, to blame uh, QAnon. I mean, you can see the distress. You know, the standard explanation for Hitler is that the Germans had no idea they were entering a world war that they would lose, 1914, 1918. No sooner was the horrible war over, 1922, four years later, they have one of the worst inflations in human history. My mother, who lived in Berlin at the time, remembers her father running home from his department store job at noon with a bag of money handing it off like a relay runner to my grandma who ran with the bag to the grocery store because if you didn't do that, by the evening, if you went to shop, your bag of money would get you a quarter pound of butter. That was it. You know, prices were doubling every hour or two. That wiped out the savings. Germans are very frugal people. They'd been saving money for decades, putting it aside, you know, and suddenly that money was worthless. The price inflation you, you hit them with a world war loss, you hit them with an inflation that drives them crazy, and then five years later, 1929, the global depression hits. No wonder they turned to Hitler in 1933. I mean, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to understand how these things add up. We are doing to the American people something roughly comparable, and we're pretty far down that road, and we're beginning to see where that leads, and we ought to be a lot more worried. That's why your metaphor about what, you know, feeling like uh, the, the, the years before World War I, that's exactly the, the sounding the alarm. You know, you've got to be Paul Revere in a sense of saying to people, hey, hey, no, connect the dots here. So what should we be, what should the left be doing? Like, what should we be calling for? And how inevitable is what happens next? Well, I, you know, I never 
inevitability, I I don't believe in it. So I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't worry about that. I don't think anybody can. I, I can't predict the future. I don't think anybody else can uh, uh, either. And I say that as a professional economist who is constantly being offered very lucrative uh, deals to predict right. where things are going. Uh, and I have to say to these people, much as I would enjoy taking your money, uh, I'm not a shyster. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen because the only person who does that is that person in the amusement park who tells you who you're going to be sleeping with in a couple of weeks. And you know it's an amusement. If you found someone who actually began to worry because they didn't want to sleep with that person, you'd right. realize you had someone who needed some help. Anyway, uh, I think the left should say all of this. I think the left should be doing what it is doing, trying to offer as systematically as possible another way of seeing this. Um, I like, I really do. I like to tell people who recently they've been asking me a lot because I'm an economist about the inflation. And I find myself doing this wonderful kind of education of history again. They say, what can we do? There's nothing we can do. And I tell them, 15th of August, 1971, a conservative Republican crook named Richard Nixon, who's the president, goes on radio and television and says, as of tomorrow morning, eight o'clock, any businessman or woman who raises the price of what they sell or what they produce will be arrested and carted off to jail because we're not going to tolerate this inflation. The inflation stopped. So don't, there's nothing complicated here. And when people say yes, but that it, there were a lot of problems with that. Absolutely true. There are a lot of problems with anything. There's a lot of problems if we do nothing. There's a lot of problems if the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. There are a lot of problems. But why is it that we have a discussion about these options? And then I bring up this other one, which is our own history. And I'm told there were a lot of I mean, the right. transparent fakery of all of this right. should be what we should be talking about this. What about a price freeze? You know, people don't remember the most basic things. Who sets the price of things in this country? Employers. That's 1% of the population. The rest of us pay the prices they set. If the prices go up, who's doing that? It's not the government. It is the private owners of businesses. And if you ask them, why are you raising their prices, your prices, if you're honest, the answer is the same answer they give for asking them why they do anything. And the answer is profit is our bottom line. We raise prices like we do any other strategic move right. in order to increase our profit. But suddenly we're told, oh, no, I'm not, oh, no, I'm doing it because my inputs went up. Or I'm doing it because there's all, somebody else is making me do my. Pro I mean, this is so childish. If we stop allowing them to do the price increase, we don't have an inflation. Right. That would be hard on them. There would be consequences, no question. And those would have to be attended to. But we're not in some, in some little bubble where you can only think this way and you can't think that. That makes no sense. Those were conservative advisors to Mr. Nixon who looked at the range of problems and decided that's what we're going to do. 
And by the way, the wage price freeze stayed in there for, I don't remember, eight or nine months before it was undone. There was opposition to it, but it was opposition to the inflation that led them to do it in the first place. And they weren't crazies. Mr. Nixon was not hounded out of office because of the wage price freeze. He was hounded out of office because of Watergate and all that that meant. Yeah, there's a lot of pseudoscience, right? Like people yep. will present economic theories as as devoid of ideology, right? You're just calling yeah. balls and strikes. You're just saying this has to happen. And as you pointed out, there's obviously many different interventions that can be applied. But something you said is that you seem to think, and I don't want to miss quote you, but I was watching one of your videos about how U.S. hegemony is on its way out or has already left. So is that inevitable? And if so, how do we as people who are against hegemony, but also live in the United States, how should we be preparing? And what are the, the ways that we can fight for a more egalitarian, equitable, just world? Okay, here's how I would answer. Every other empire that we know of is gone. And so it seems to me the burden of proof is not on me that this one is going to go. It's on the the burden sure. of proof is on whoever thinks it isn't going to go. And then I will have fun with them because I will identify for them all the people in every one of the empires that's gone who insisted right up to the last day that it wouldn't go. It could last forever. Yeah. Having said that, um, sorry. No, it's okay. And I'm not doubting you. I'm just saying, given that likelihood, what should we be doing? I think you have two ways to handle a declining empire. One way is violence, conflict, horrible struggle. And that may end up either way. I mean, maybe there's some more life in the American empire. Maybe they can defeat the Russians and the Chinese if it comes to that. I don't know. I doubt that either side of them knows either. It's a horrible con- thing to think about, you know. Uh, and I don't know how good they are at doing it either. Uh, the, the American prosecution of war in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan doesn't give me a whole hell of a lot of a, uh, a confidence. And the Russians who lost in Afghanistan before the Americans did, likewise. So, I, you know, and the Chinese, I have not been busy running around the world fighting wars. So who knows what they are or are not capable of? But I think the alternative is to say, we can't afford a war. I mean, it is so crazy that maybe we can, for the first time in history, sit down and work something out. Give up on both. The United States can't be the world hegemon, and it's over. The Chinese can't, I hope, tolerate the risk of provoking the United States into something that's destructive of both sides, remembering that World War I was the the destruction of most of the sides in that game. Uh, Maybe they could sit down and work out a division. The way large corporations that come bump at each other sometimes can work out a division. You still have to monitor it. You have to worry that either one or the other side will think there's an advantage by undoing the deal, but make a deal. I mean, I find it ironic that most of the 20th century, we were told there's a great struggle between capitalism and socialism, and deals were made, detente, arms control, deals were made by the United States and Russia 
not to destroy themselves. Russia stops being socialist, whatever they meant by it, now embraces capitalism, which they do enthusiastically, and suddenly we're back to scary war stories. I mean, if ever the argument that capitalism has something peculiar to do with war got some merit, it seems to me by the very logic of where we are that we're in that situation. But I think the left should say these kinds of struggles are irrational. We are we are moving in the direction of war. We're already in a proxy war. That was the kind of proxy war, if you know about the history before World War I, there were wars in the Middle East, there were wars in North Africa, there were all these skirmishes in which the French would fight the British or the Germans, the Russians, in Turkey, and I mean, all over the place. We're on the way to do that, but we're smart enough to have learned something from our history. Let's work this out in order not to destroy ourselves. I think my reading of the American people is that there's a growing sense of real anguish, malaise. It's partly the economy. It's partly COVID. It's partly the sense of endless disease. But again, my wife's a psychotherapist. She says it's coming through her clients that that she sees on a regular basis. Because yeah, even if what brought them in is that they're having relationship troubles or, or jobs troubles, the larger world is seeping in to their thinking, to their feelings, to their conversations. She has to deal with social issues because they are infecting more than ever before uh, the mental well-being of the people that she sees. And so I think it's that's emblematic of what's going on and that there would be a very strong, surprising support to a political movement that had the nerve to say that, that the lesson of the war in Iraq, in Ukraine is not deciding whether Biden's an angel and Putin's a devil or vice versa. This is useless. It's not going to solve anything. If anything, it's a prelude to even larger versions of this. Why don't we take this other step? You won't get everybody. But I think you would get a surprisingly large and therefore politically powerful constituency. Well, Professor Wolf, thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. I love talking to you. I'd love to have you back on. I want to have you on with your wife at some point. That would be fascinating. All right. Well, yeah, we do some things together. And uh, yeah, I, I would help you arrange that if you want to. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. And 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 if you don't mind my saying so... We would love to have a link when you're done. Of course, so yeah. That, so that we can uh, promote it and post it up on our websites too. Great, of course. All right, very okay. good. Take Thank care. Thank you so Kate. much. Take you care. too. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.